Given the mostly Sufi background of British Muslims, I asked Phil Lewis why puritanical and anti-Western readings of Islam are proving so influential. Take 1977 as one particular year. In 1977, communist Russia, as it then was, was spending $1 billion a year on communist propaganda. In the same year, the Saudis were spending twice or three times that and have done so every year since. So that means a huge amount of Saudi petrol dollars have gone into creating major Muslim mosques in European cities, in supporting various organisations across the West, in giving large numbers of Muslims scholarships to study Islam in Medina. And with that goes a particular understanding of Islam, which to be charitable is scripturalist, which is to be less than charitable is an austere, literalist, Puritan version of Islam, which is ill at ease with Islamic diversity, let alone religious otherness, Christians and Jews. It's a textual Islam, whatever one thinks about how those texts are understood and interpreted. And even those majority Muslims who aren't drawn into a sort of Wahhabi, Salafi frame of reference are beginning to have to define themselves over and against this kind of scriptural deposit. So a more open, accommodatory Sufi tradition would now have to be much more articulate about the Quranic and Hadith texts which legitimise their reading of Islam within the Sufi tradition. You could almost call it a kind of Protestantization of Islam. And this has resonance for some sections of young British Muslims because they are reacting against the Islam of their parents' generation. Their parents, if you like, unreflective oral Islam doesn't give them the resources to answer questions. So they're forced back to texts. And that's where the texts often available and in ready supply and well-produced are Salafi texts. So in many ways, the Salafi influence has been way out of proportion to those who would actually buy into it as a particular reading of Islam. However, Ron Jeeves argues that South Asian Islam already had its own homegrown puritanical forms. They developed organically in the Indian subcontinent as a part of the process of Islam feel under threat. And one of its reactions to be under threat was to retreat, isolate and look for a pure form. So you get that reaction coming right through from the 17th century in India, even before the Diabandis. And, of course, one can talk about Malauna Maududi with his idea that to practice Islam fully and totally, one requires an Islamic state, implementing Sharia fully. So, in a sense, you have both the Diabandis and the 20th century organisations, Jamaati Islami, in fact, having, kind of, you want, similar or parallel ideas to Wahhabism. I mean, I always kind of feel controversially that the Saudi regime has always had a kind of a sense of guilt in that I think it suspects that both politically and materially it's no longer, and these are the Saudi rulers, are no longer living by the tenets of the kind of puritanical Wahhabism of Wahhab. And one way of appeasing that guilt after the oil was discovered was to spend large amounts of money on promoting Wahhabism um, through education, through mosques and so on. And, and when they do that outside of the context of Saudi itself, they tend to look for organisations that may not be Wahhabi but at least have similar 
ideas or similar ideologies to Wahhabism. So in terms of mosque support, it's much, much easier in the UK, say, if you're a Diabandi mosque or you're wanting to build a Diabandi mosque, to be able to go back to Saudi and say, we're building a mosque, can you support us? Then if, say, you're a part of the kind of Barelvi tradition, which, you know, Wahhabism has always been hostile to because of its Sufi sympathies, you can't then really go cap in hand. <laughs> you know, so you've got to raise the money internally.